I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, just scoot closer to someone who does because we want to read Scripture. We want to focus on the text. We want to be taught through His Word. We started our study of Matthew in December of last year. December of last year. And we've been in this gospel every single Sunday since December, except for six weeks, six Sundays, where we took off for either a special occasion or a special sermon. So today is our 33rd sermon from the book of Matthew. I trust in the Lord that you have been growing along with me and other preachers who have been up here, growing in uh, just knowing Christ and responding to Christ, right? Uh, otherwise, why are we here? What is the point of us gathering and, and hearing week after week his word and not responding and not growing, not appreciating Christ and who he is for us? Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, and we're going to take a break right here. As soon as we come to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to put this series away, and we will resume it in 2022, okay? But, and we're going to, uh, we'll let you know our next series and what we'll be studying, but uh, Matthew chapter 9, as we come to this end, we need to be reminded of how Matthew lays out his gospel from Matthew 1.1 to now 9. So there is a if you remember in December, we had our Advent series, God With Us, and so we looked at Matthew 1 and 2. So that was like a short study. And then Matthew 3 is really the breaking point where, where John the Baptist comes out, and then Jesus starts preaching. And Matthew 3 leads into Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus' words, the Sermon on the Mount, and we spent, I think, 17 or 18 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount studying through Christ's words. And then Matthew transitions in chapter 9 and begins to focus not on his words, but on his works. So this is how it's laid out. Matthew 5 through 7 is Christ's words. Matthew 7 or 8 and 9 are his works. And go back with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of the section on his words. And Matthew ends Christ's sermon in in Matthew 7, with a call to respond, with a call to respond. And so remember in verse 24 of chapter 7, basically if you were to sum up what Matthew or what Christ preached, basically he says, don't just hear the message, but obey the message. And this was our study as we were going through verses 24 through the end of Matthew chapter 7. Don't just hear the message, but obey the message. And then Matthew wraps up in verses 28, in verse 28 and 29, and he basically makes another point. Don't just admire the messenger, but submit to the messenger. So it's not just about hearing, it's not just about knowing, it's not just about having this intellectual awareness and knowledge of who Christ is. Yeah, I heard Christ. Oh yeah, I know about him. The call is to submit. The call is to respond to the words of Christ. Now he ends these next two chapters, chapters 
8 and 9, which primarily focus on his works with another call to respond. So in these verses here, we see the sight of the blind and the blindness of the seen. And it sort of gives us the paradox. Here's a group of people who physically cannot see, yet they respond to Christ. They see something about Christ. And here's another group of people who have sort of 20-20 vision, yet are completely oblivious to what is going on and who this Christ is. Matthew brings this last set of miracles to emphasize people's response to Jesus Christ. How will they respond? Not only to what they've heard Christ say, but also to what they've seen. If you notice, Matthew 8 and 9, as we've been studying, it's all about miracles. There's very little dialogue. Jesus does does thing. He walks around, he touches people, he heals them. He says, because of your faith, you've been healed. And he does these amazing and, and radical, like crazy things for us and for the people there. Why? In order to elicit a response from people. We've seen how, how the gospel of Matthew progressively reveals the person of Christ through these miracles. In other words, one miracle builds on the other and unveils more and more of, God, of Christ's glory than the previous one. And so when we come to this last set of miracles, look with me at Matthew chapter 9. We'll begin with verse 27 and we'll study through verse 34. When, when it comes to this last set, two more miracles, you, you, almost, you, you might feel kind of disappointed as, as some commentators when, when you read them that these miracles are sort of anticlimactic. Like, uh, for instance, what can be more powerful and glorious than the raising of the dead? Right? If you won't believe someone, that someone is great, right, in your midst, after they raise a 12-year-old girl who's been dead, now she's walking, then I don't know what will move the needle for you. In other words, that miracle was just something amazing. Yet, the goal of Christ's miracles wasn't to prove that Jesus is someone great. Not like the prophets who have come before him, but to prove that he is the prophet, the greater Moses, the greater David who was anticipated, who was prophesied by the very same prophets who, I will remind you, performed similar miracles to Christ. And so as we come to this passage, I will submit to you that the miracles that Matthew closes with here, the, the giving of the sight to the blind and the restoration of hearing and speaking to the mute, they prove without a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, these two miracles are actually greater than the resurrection miracle. And so I want you to ask yourself, as you're sitting here and hearing God's word about Jesus Christ today, we were just singing together with the congregation, and I, I really hope that we all meant what we were singing, show us Christ. Um, ask yourself, how have I been responding to what I've been learning about Jesus Christ? Because the call of this passage is you got to respond. You can't just sit and listen. You can't just observe and say, man, this is amazing. This is amazing. You, you have to respond. There's, there's no, uh, to, to be neutral, right? Neutrality to Jesus is impossible. 
You can't sit on the fence when it comes to Christ. You either reject him or you submit to him. You come to him, and as a believer, you keep on coming to him. Or you find many other damning alternatives like the Pharisees did. You either see the greatness and the glory of Christ, or you are blinded to it. So where are you this morning? And as we look at this passage, I want you to consider and answer this each in your own hearts. Verse 27, Matthew chapter 9, let's begin our reading. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute men spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. As we kind of gather our thoughts here, I want, us, I want us to just focus on this one central theme this morning. The miracles of Christ, church, remember, the miracles of Christ are not recorded for us to magnify the miracles, but to exalt Christ and to force us to respond to Christ properly. All of the miracles that we've been seeing, including and especially these two, They're not there to make much of miracles. They are there to magnify Christ and to exalt him and to put you in a place where you will make a decision. What are you going to do with Christ? How are you going to respond to this Messiah? What do these miracles reveal about Christ? Well, they reveal greater glory of Christ than all the other preceding miracles. And I want us to just split this section into two miracles, so we're going to look at one section, one miracle, and then the second, and here are your basic headings. If you have the bulletin with you and you grabbed it, it's on the other side of your bulletin, but basically, here it is. Number one, two blinds who see the glory of Christ, the greatness of Christ, and then the second point that we're going to make is too blind to see the greatness of Christ. So first in verses 27 through 31, we have two blinds, two blind men. And Matthew picks up right where he left off last week. Jesus is inside Jairus' house, and after raising his daughter, we read in verse 27 that he goes on from there, and as he leaves that house and heads to another house, as we will see, he enters that house in verse 28. So somewhere on the way, these two blind men, they find out that Jesus is in their midst, and they follow him. Blind men following Jesus. Consider blindness. I don't know if you have anybody in maybe your family or you had previously, you know, of a friend, of a friend maybe who is blind, maybe partially blind or fully blind. Blindness is just this tragic condition that is both tragic today as it was back in the day. But back in those days, blind and lame men 
They would make their living by begging. That's all they can do. In fact, someone else would often just bring them and would just post them, sit them down by a temple or by a busy highway, and they would beg to be sustained. They were barred from participating in normal societal functions and any occupations. And in fact, blind men were often considered to be cursed and judged by God being in such a desperate condition. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, it's interesting to see that when God was judging somebody, he would often cause men to be blind. Like Genesis 19, remember Sodom and Gomorrah? When these men are around the house, they're trying to get in to get the angels. The angels reach out and they blinded the men. That was a curse. That was a judgment from God. And we see this repeating in other instances in Scripture. But they come to Jesus and they cry out. And having no social regard, no social status, in order to grab any kind of attention, they always have to cause a scene. In other words, if they're just sitting there in the corner, no one cares for them, they may drop a dime, and that's about it. But in order to grab someone's attention, they have to yell, literally. They have to cry out. And so that's exactly what they're doing. They're following, and they are crying out, literally screaming out. They are determined to get to Jesus. Now, what is extraordinary about these men is that they know who Jesus is. They are blind, yet they're very perceptive. It's amazing. I want you to see three truths that they know about Jesus Christ and what compels them to follow him into the house to yell and to scream for help. Why? Because they know something about this man that others seem not to know. Number one, the blind man, they saw the greatness of Christ's identity. The greatness of Christ's identity. They cry out and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. We'll we'll come back to this first phrase, have mercy on us. But I want you to see what the blind men are claiming as they're crying out and following Jesus. This is very incredible because up to this point, no one has called Jesus by this title. In other words, this wasn't like a buzzword that was going around. That crowd was like, this Jesus Messiah, son of David. And they just happened to hear that, oh, son of David, son of David is here. And they picked on that and they're like, well, maybe it works with other people. And we will also cry out, son of David. Maybe we will capture his attention. That's not what's going on here. These two men, they are unable to see with their physical eyes And they weren't able to perceive and observe physically all the other miracles of Christ. They know that Jesus is the son of David. What they were saying, what they were claiming was that Jesus is the promised king. He is the promised Christ. This one right here is special. How do you know? You don't even see. I know. Son of David. Have mercy on us. What's the significance of this title? Where, well, it's a messianic title. And, and, and Jews at that very moment, they were waiting for their Messiah. And the expected title, even in their own literature, by which this Messiah would reveal himself would be the son of David. Everybody is aware. Everybody is waiting. They know. 
They, however, they expect a, a sort of a, a military messiah who would kick out the Romans or, or some kind of politician who would rally the people and bring back the glory days of David and Solomon. They did not expect this Messiah, the son of David, to be the God-man who would come to people and he would heal, he would show mercy, he would be more attracted to the needy, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. They didn't expect that kind of Messiah. And, and, and God promised in the Old Testament, that there would be a son who would come and who would rule on the throne of David. And the primary passage that foretells his coming, the coming of the son of David, is found in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13 and on. And if you're recording, you can write that down. Let me just read these two verses for us as we make just a couple of observations. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13 This is God speaking to David, and he tells him this. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever, God tells David that a son will come forth from him, a single descendant, not multiple sons. He's not going to have this massive family, although he had a massive family, but the focus here is on one son, one descendant. And I will establish, God says, his kingdom forever. And so David is excited because Solomon is born. And Solomon is born and the kingdom prospers in all of its glory. There was not a time after Solomon, where his kingdom was as glorious as during the height of Solomon's reign. Solomon is born, but we quickly find out if we keep reading the Old Testament that he's not the son. And Solomon's sons are not the sons because all of them, they become corrupt and they all die. But God tells David that the son who will proceed from David is actually greater than David. He will make God's name great and will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. There will be no end. I will establish your throne forever. No one, church, no one had fulfilled this role until We go to Matthew. All throughout the Old Testament, they're waiting for the son. And all the prophets are speaking about this greater son of David who will come and who will deliver his people. They don't know the extent of that deliverance, but we find out that the deliverance is not physical. It is from their sins. And when we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew the first author of the New Testament, he opens up his gospel with these words, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Here he is. And remember, Matthew is writing after the death and resurrection of Christ already. And he's writing, he's compiling all of these records in order to present them to the church, to strengthen the church so that they would see and they would know that Jesus is the son of David, the very promised son. So that is his goal, that is his focus. And he begins by saying, this is the one 
It's sort of an introduction. It's a thesis statement for his entire gospel. This is the son of David. Let me tell you more about him. And this is the first time in Matthew chapter 9 where a man recognizes Jesus Christ for who he is. He is the Messiah and calls him by that title, the son of David. Now, in Matthew 21, Matthew 21, Christ is in his final week before his death. And at that time, the crowds are in on the secret because Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In fact, in Matthew 21, uh, verse 15, when you go down just a little bit, the children also get involved. The children begin to praise so that the chief priests and scribes, they become indignant, it says. They become angry. And they confront Jesus. They come up to Jesus and they say, hey, don't you see? Don't you hear what they're saying? They're saying that you are the son of David. And Obviously, the scribes and Pharisees, they know the Bible. They've read that. They are aware of the expectation. They are expecting the Messiah. And they're coming up to this rabbi. Don't you see that they're saying, that they're singing, they're shouting that you are that guy? And and how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, listen, the scripture foretold that they will be praising me. Let them shout. That's my paraphrase. But that's in essence what he was saying. The scripture foretold that that would happen. They are praising me because I am the guy that was promised to come. So here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, the blind men see. They know. Maybe maybe they're aware of certain scripture and, and maybe they saw the connection between the reports that they were hearing about Jesus granting real, lasting healings and, and what that real Messiah was supposed to do. We, we don't know how they perceived that this man was the one, but we do know that they perceived. That is evident here in verse 27. So the blind man, they saw the greatness of Christ's identity, and because of that, they saw the greatness of Christ's mercy. Notice what they cry out, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. Because they perceived Christ to be the son of David, the Messiah, they sought from this one mercy and compassion of God. They were crying out, they were saying, give me mercy. Son of David, give me mercy. It's a cry to receive what you do not deserve. A plea for mercy, church, is an admission of sin and guilt. A plea for mercy is a request to be spared and to be pardoned. When you cry out for mercy, you acknowledge that you have absolutely no other resources, no other option, no other person to appeal to. There's a cry for mercy. I need something only you can grant me. Forgiveness, compassion, have mercy. Psalm 60, 86, verse 15, the psalmist cries out and says, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. 
Psalm 119, 156, great are your mercies, O Lord. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. Think about this. What prompted the two blind men to cry out for mercy? It's their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. He's the son of David. He's the promised Christ. In fact, they were, by this statement, they were concluding that this is the very same Lord that the psalmist were addressing in the Psalms. This Lord that the psalmist, psalmist is crying out, great are your mercies, O Lord. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. They're saying, you're the guy. You're the one. Have mercy on me. Have compassion. And if this is the guy, surely he will have mercies. Why? Because there are abundant mercies with the Lord. These men did not care about being too loud, too disruptive, too vocal about their need. They were aware of their need, and they sought Christ. Oh, they saw the greatness of Christ's mercy. Finally, they saw the greatness of his power, of Christ's power. Look at this. In verse 28, when they had entered the house, Jesus addresses them. It's almost like up to this point, we don't know how long it took. Mile, two, three, I don't know, maybe just from one door to the next. But it's almost like Jesus was ignoring them for a little bit and going in and going into the house. And we'll, we, we'll find out why he was doing that. But he wasn't responding at all. He was just going. He had a destination. As soon as he gets in the house, they come inside. They follow him. They're so persistent. And then Jesus turns around and he asks them, do you believe that I can do this? And with this question, listen, he, what he is asking is this. Not, do you believe that God can do this? Do you believe that I can pray to God, my Father, and he can heal you? That's not what he's asking. He is specifically asking, do you believe that I, personally, I can do this? Do you believe that I have the power in myself to give your eyes the necessary sight to see? That's what he was doing. Me, if you cry out to me, the son of David, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes. Yes, this, I mean, this is another great admission. Here's what we have to understand to really feel the gravity of this answer. Listen, up to this point, no one had ever been healed blindness. No one had healed a blind man, ever. The Old Testament contains no such miracles. Both Elijah and Elisha, they raised the dead in the Old Testament. But even they never restored the sight. It's amazing when you read Exodus chapter 4 verse 11 and it says, The Lord said to him, to Moses in that address by the burning bush, and he says, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf? Or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who does that? the Lord. Psalm 146 verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. What is abundantly clear from these passages is that only the Lord can give sight. And as you move through the Old Testament into the prophets, 
restoration of sight becomes one of the crowning miracles of the coming Messiah. When you see God's people, when you see someone in your midst restoring sight, know that that's the one. That's the old Lord of the Old Testament. Isaiah 29 verse 11, on that day, the day when the Messiah comes, the deaf will hear words of a book. Amazing miracle. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, verse 4 and 6. So to those with anxious heart, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And it is only when we get to Matthew that we see the blindness being healed. In the ministry of Jesus, healing blindness is the most predominant of all Jesus' healings. More than healing the lame, more than demon possession, more than mute and deaf or, or any other miracle, Restoring sight to the blind is the miracle that points to him. And it's interesting that as we make our way past the Gospels, into Acts and all the way through Revelation, we don't find another man restoring sight as Jesus did. It was specifically during the ministry of Christ. Not before, not after. And if you're thinking right now about Acts 9, Paul's blindness is very different as his blindness is restored when he sees Jesus Christ. It was a response to seeing Christ. Jesus alone, here's the point, Jesus alone restores the sight. So by asking the question, do you believe that I can do this? Jesus was ultimately asking, do you believe that I am the Lord who's able to restore your sight? And they said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Oh, their faith was directed at Jesus' person and to his power and authority to perform this great work. But I want you to see something else, that the blind men saw the greatness of Christ by faith. They didn't need physical eyes. If you're struggling with your eyesight today, it doesn't matter. It's the heart. It's the eyes of your heart. They responded and they saw his greatness by faith. Jesus comes and he touches sinners. He touches the eyes we read. There's something profound and very personal about Jesus' touch. He always wants to be around people. They can't see him. They can only hear him. So he comes, he touches their eyes, and he says, let it be according to your faith. Now, we can read this and falsely conclude that uh, they were healed in proportion to their faith. Right? Let it be according to your faith. So we may conclude that if you have this much faith, you get this much healing, right? And if your faith is but a mustard seed, well, then you just get a Band-Aid. You don't don't get anything beyond that, right? But that's not what he's saying. He is basically saying, according to your faith, it doesn't mean in, in in proportion, right? He's not talking about ratios here, in proportion to your faith, but since you believed, be healed, since you exercised faith in me, however imperfect, because we've seen, right, their imperfect faith earlier on. 
And, and this man, they, these men, they, they don't know everything about Christ. And we need to stop, I think when we read the Gospels, importing everything that we know from Romans and from 1 Corinthians and 2nd and all the other epistles about Jesus Christ. Wow, they, they are fully aware of the person of Christ. They are not. They don't even know this guy's gonna die. But they're, they notice something about him that this one is special. This one is the son of David. And we're not sure how everything is gonna play out right now, but we believe. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Well, be healed according to the amount of faith that you have. It's similar to verse 22, where he says, your faith has made you uh, well. Listen, faith, faith is the means by which the gift is received. It, not merited, right? Your faith doesn't merit anything. It is neither the, the magic wand nor the reason in and of it. Self. Faith is also by grace, as we find out all over the Bible. And before we think about how we're going to apply this, let me just close this section in verse uh, 30 and 31 real quick. Jesus, warnly, uh, Jesus sternly warns them, we read. And he says, don't tell this to anybody else. And, and D.A. Carson here, he he says, this rather violent verb reveals Jesus' intense desire to avoid a falsely based and ill-conceited acclaim that would not only impede but also endanger his true mission. In other words, like when we come together, we're saying, man, you go out these doors and you tell people about Jesus Christ, right? But we got to understand this in its historical context, Okay. This is not a command that, that we would apply. Hey, how come you're not evangelizing? Well, look, I just read Matthew 9. Uh, yeah, and he said not to tell anyone. <clears throat> That's not what we do, right? We need to interpret this historically. Remember, remember here the setting. They're in the house, and Jesus waited until they would come inside the house to heal them. Uh, because this healing here, remember, they, this healing is on a completely different level. Nothing like this had ever been done before. They just call him the son of David, and he tells them, don't spread this news. The news about him being the son of David, him being the Messiah right now, because it's not time yet. My time has not yet come. Isn't that what he says in Gospel of John over and over and over again? Any kind of premature public declaration of his Messiahship would end up in the wrong implementation of his kingship. In other words, this is exactly what happened in John chapter 6, verse 15, where there was this talk about Jesus being the king, and then this group of guys said, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to take him, and we're going to make him king, because he's able. He's the son of David, and God tells him, Jesus here tells him, don't spread this news. We're in the house. They're only a small group of people. Don't spread this news. What do they do? They disobey. Now, how should we take their disobedience? I don't think here Matthew's point is to highlight their disobedience or, or their immaturity of faith, but it is to point to the fact that these men could not keep it to themselves about the true identity of Christ. This was truly the Son of God. And they said, we're going to tell everybody and everything, even though they disobeyed the Lord. Can you imagine? Listen, I was blind, now I see. How are you seeing? It's the man in the house. He told me I could see and now I'm seeing. And his fame spread all over the place. 
And their focus literally, you can, you can uh, sense it here in verse 31, their focus is on him. Like they weren't telling about this whole miracle and Matthew really doesn't tell how Jesus did all the particulars. They're saying this man, the man, the truth about him spread everywhere. They saw Christ. They saw and they perceived Christ, listen, before they saw Christ, before they saw him in person, which is amazing. So friends, how do we behold Christ and see his greatness today? As we, as we consider how we can apply this truth, he is the promised Messiah. So do you behold him as your only savior? Do you run to him as your only sustainer who lavishes his mercy and grace on you? Do you, do you see the greatness of Christ's identity and power so that the sight of this glorious Christ causes you to run to him daily to receive mercy and grace as the author writes in time of need? Think about it. When, when you're in sin, do you run in repentance and confession knowing that this Christ is full of mercy? When you've been sinned against by a friend or by someone here who's sitting maybe next to you or opposite of you or on the other side, when you're sinned against, or maybe your spouse, do you run to Christ to learn again and again how to forgive because you have been forgiven much and receiving great mercy and grace from Christ? Listen, if you stop seeing Christ for who he is, you will stop coming to Christ. You will stop being persistent. Are, are, are you praying that, as, as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassed greatness of his power towards us who believe? In other words, do you, are, are you allowing this great Christ to really surpass everything in your life? And it's not really about this one time that, that you come to Christ when you've repented and that when you trusted, when you prayed that prayer. It's not about that, is it? Like for us believers? No, it's, it's about regularly coming to Christ because he is the only solution to all of our needs and all of our wants. What do you want me to do? He asked another group of blind men later on in Matthew. So Matthew wants us to see that as Jesus' identity becomes more and more crystallized, people are starting to choose sides. Why? Why are they choosing sides? Well, because, I said, as I said, neutrality to Jesus Christ is impossible. You simply can't sit and observe. You have to do something. And so that while the naturally blind see the supernatural reality of who Jesus Christ is, and they come running to him for mercy, the seeing are too blind to see his greatness, which brings us to this last point here in verses 22 through 34. Too blind to see the greatness of Christ. This is another significant miracle, a mute man, man who's been, who's also, we read here, a demon-possessed. He's brought to Jesus. And notice here, there's just a, 
little textual note here in verse 32. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. The text doesn't say that the man is mute because of demon possession. It simply says that he is mute and also demon-possessed. And so it becomes significant here as Matthew brings in the context of the Pharisees. Mute man. Mute, it means either deaf or mute. He either can't hear or he can't speak. Um, In English, we have those two terms that differentiate between the two. In Greek, it just has one term to mean both. So it can either mean he is both or he's either or. We, We don't know that. So nothing here is mentioned about this man's faith. Nothing is mentioned about the miracle itself, which is amazing. Jesus doesn't touch. Jesus doesn't say. It's just he came, and after he was healed, something happened. What is Matthew doing here? Remember that as with the previous miracle, the focus and the aim is always on Jesus Christ. Who is this man? Who is this son of David who is able to restore the sight of the blind? The focus is on the greatness of Christ, his identity, his mercy, his power. Look to him. It's what the blind men are crying out. Look to him. Believe in him. He is the promised king. Now, instead of focusing on all of the details of another miracle, Matthew, by bringing in another healing, wants to center on attention on the response to Christ. So the focus here is on the response, not on the details of a miracle, but response. How will you react? We already saw one reaction. The blind men went out and began to speak about Jesus. What about the rest? We, we, we see here that the mute man is speaking now. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. What does it mean for those who are around? He is speaking. Well, just like the miracle of restoring sight, the miracle of restoring hearing and speech is also a messianic sign as we've read before Isaiah 50 or 35 verse 6 says and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy and the man or the mute man spoke amazing this day is now basically what Jesus is saying The Messiah has come to restore the mute and to destroy the works of the devil. That is why Jesus can cast out his minions with a word, his demons. And and look how the crowds respond. Nothing like this has ever been seen. What that indicates is this is a new era. Something new and something incredible, something better is taking place here in our midst. It is radically different. It is radically unique. In the past 4,000 years, nothing like this has ever been observed among God's people. They've never seen this kind of power and this kind of greatness from all of their leaders, teachers, their scribes, their Pharisees. This is something altogether new. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But Matthew wants us to see the contrast here. While the blind see, the seen are blind. But the Pharisees, verse 34, were saying. Here's the opposition. Here's the blindness that will become more evident as Matthew proceeds to tell the story leading to the cross. Instead of recognizing the Messiah, they reinterpret their reality. 
no recognition, but reinterpretation of what is taking place. Instead of seeing Jesus as messianic, they conclude that Jesus is satanic. I mean, it's almost like sometimes you read these passages and you're afraid to read them out loud. He cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And notice, notice their first statement here. He cast out demons. That's an amazing statement. <laughs> they're not denying the reality. They're saying they're aware of what's taking place. They don't deny the fact that Jesus is casting out demons, that Jesus is giving sight to the blind. Jesus has amazing power. He has power. But they deny the conclusion. His power is from Satan, the ruler of the demons, not from God. And since that's the case, he ought to be rejected. They were more concerned, friends, with upholding their tradition than actually seeing the truth of God's word. They had, amazing, they had Messiah, the king, right before them, doing the things that the Bible predicted and said he will be doing. And they concluded that this one is not messianic, this one is satanic. This is a great evil, isn't it? They were reinterpreting scripture and the reality before them to fit their own agenda and to fit their own pursuits. These men were so confident in their understanding of scripture and their tradition that they were willing to call God Satan. And doing so, become guilty of the very sin they accused Jesus of later on. Seeing yet blind to the greatness of Christ. That's why in Matthew 13, if you flip there with me, in verse 14, Jesus quotes Isaiah, and he says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive, for the hearts of this people has become dull. Their ears, with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. That's why it's no surprising that during the final week of his ministry here before the cross, Jesus, in condemning the religious elite in Matthew 23, in verse 16, he would often say, woe to you blind guides. In verse 19, you blind men. In verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee. You choose not to believe even though I'm right here in front of you, and you have your two eyes. So how can we be guilty of the same today, friends? As I said in the beginning, there's no neutrality with Jesus. You are either his friend or you his enemy. You are either living in him or you are dying apart from him. You are either responding to Christ or you're not? How are you responding to him today? As we study Christ, do you see him as everything you need? Ask yourself this question. If everything is stripped away from me today, 
your wife, your kids, your career, your possession, yet even your very own life, will you be satisfied with Christ alone because he is the promised king who takes away your sins? Would you not glorify Christ for that alone? Forget about everything else that's happening in your family, in your church, in your state. It doesn't matter. Are you satisfied simply with Jesus Christ who is your pardon or not? Do you see the greatness and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ? If not, though you may sit here with a 2020 vision, you are still blinded to Christ. Truly needy people always see Christ as their only hope. It's the proud who see no need in Christ. One more, when the reality of following Christ, it interferes with your sinful desires or your way of life, do you repent and and conform to Christ or do you explain it away like the Pharisees did? When you find out that you've you've adopted some kind of unbiblical maybe uh, view on a certain issue, do you continue to twist scripture to fit your view instead of submitting to the word of Christ because he is greater You love and and pursue a certain sin that may be destroying you, your family, or your church instead of turning to Christ in repentance and you find a quote-unquote biblical excuse to continue in that sin. Brother, sister, we are called to live the life of Christ. Why? Because he is our Lord. We are called to be conformed to the image of Christ We can't be and won't be if we're not constantly running to Christ in repentance. This is the call. It's not just one time seeing Christ and repenting of your sin. It's daily seeing Christ, beholding him, and constantly repenting, constantly conforming as we behold him in Scripture, as we fellowship with one another. Our job as fellow Christians is to stir each other to be daily drawing in the light of Christ through prayer and through the word of Christ. That is our hope, and that is my prayer for me, for you, that we would continue to see Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us the eyes to behold him. And as we leave this place, may all this other fluff not drown Christ. May we spend time just thanking and praising you and dealing with our sin and seeing how we can submit more of our life to you because Jesus is worthy. He died for sin. He died to destroy the works of the devil. We thank you for the example of these blind men and the power that is demonstrated through the ministry of Christ. That same power is available to us today through the Spirit, and we pray that we would avail ourselves to it. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.